of glittering delights. And here, host Dandre Leyland. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a special weekly dose of the Palace of Glittering Delights. Continuing my look at Denny O'Neill's run on The Amazing Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man issue 210 features the first appearance of Madam Webb. The cover by John Jr. and Al Milgram shows her sat in her chair with computerised spider-like arms connecting her to a literal worldwide web. Spider-Man swings in, puzzled and confused. Think you're the only webhead in town? Runs the copy. The prophecy of Madame Webb introduces John Romita Jr. and Joe Sinnott as the new art team. John Jr. will stick around. Sinnott, sadly, will not. If you thought Rupert Dockery was a scumbag after last issue, you should award yourself a pat on the back for your instincts. Dockery has hired a bunch of thugs to do away with K.J. Clayton, owner of the Globe, so he can take charge. This is a great splash page. Romita Jr. distinguishes each of the thugs, despite them all wearing masks. One has his mask up over his nose so he can smoke a cigar. Another is wearing a blue bob cap over his mask. Yet another only wears a nose and mouth covering like he's going to rob a stagecoach, which reveals his blonde hair. It's a neat way to show the reader how many of these guys there are, five, and gives them all unique characteristics. Also, that splash page sets up the entire issue. That's it. No more exposition is needed than what is on this first page. Page two cuts to Peter and Deb, and it's another great shot by Ramita Jr. It's summer in NYC, and you can smell the heat off this panel. There are kids in t-shirts and shorts, women in cut-offs, men with rolled-up shirt sleeves. It's wonderfully evocative of summertime, that kind of oppressive heat. Peter is teasing Deb about her appointment with a paranormal psychic named Madame Webb. Peter is proper scornful of Webb, thinking with a name like that she has to be a fraud. He has no time to get into it with Deb. He's late for a staff meeting at the Globe. Again. Denny's run gets some flack in certain quarters, people even arguing that Wolfman's run is better. You're entitled to your opinion, but come on, people. The writing of this issue is textbook. The setup is just... It's almost, this is how you write a comic book. We're two pages in, and you know exactly where this is going, in a great way. You know Peter will become embroiled in this scheme. You know Madame Webb will prove invaluable, proving Peter wrong. And you know it will end well and yet cost Peter in some way. And all this proves to be true, but in an interesting way. Stories can be predictable and yet still satisfying. Denny even throws in a curveball. K.J. Clayton isn't K.J. Clayton. She's an actress, the real K.J. being a recluse, a fact Dockery uses to his advantage. Remember the staff meeting that Peter missed? Well, at that, Clayton announced she was handing over the day-to-day control of her newspaper interest to Dockery. With that done, Dockery now intends to kill the young woman, meaning Dockery will have a majority over the New York media. Dockery will then kill the real KJ. It's actually a pretty smart plan, spoiled only by Madame Webb and Spider-Man. 
It's a great issue overall. It's magnificent in its simplicity. The dialogue never tips over into melodrama or exposition. And for a comic of this vintage, it's actually pretty realistic and scans well. The action scenes are beautifully handled by Ramita Jr. Yes, these guys aren't actually any competition for Spidey. So the drama comes from the ticking clock and Spider-Man having to essentially be in two places at once. He has to save the young actress and KJ, who are both in danger at the same time at the opposite ends of the city. Madame Webb is handled very well in this issue. She never comes across as a Doctor Stranger-like, rather an intriguing addition to the supporting cast. The ending is again O'Neill throwing us a last-minute surprise. Madame Webb phones Peter, letting him know that she knows he's Spider-Man. Peter is concerned about this, and that the closure of the globe due to Dockery's dealings means he's out of a job. Madame Webb lets Peter know that there are always opportunities, and the final panel is J. Jonah Jameson calling Peter to offer him his gig back at the Bugle. I had a minor niggle with the ending. Peter laments the closure of the globe, again, another great example of how Spider-Man doing the right thing screws things up for Peter Parker. He says, with this closure, he has no source of income. But he's also a teaching assistant. Does he not get paid for that? Either way, I rate this issue very highly. Sure, it's essentially resetting back to being at the Bugle. But let's be honest, him working at the Globe is the illusion of change anyway. It's not that different. And it prevents him from hanging around with Glory, Robbie, Jonah and people like Ben Urich, a far more interesting supporting cast than were available to him at the Daily Globe. Amazing Spider-Man issue 211's cover has Namor, the Submariner, swooping in for a double-fisted punch, knocking our hero off a chimney stack. No one may attack the Submariner's undersea kingdom, not even you, Spider-Man! It's again by John Rita Jr. and Al Milgram. The Spider and the Sea Scourge has no credits. Or, not in the digital version on Comixology, anyway. It's clearly Ramita Jr. and Jim Mooney on art, though. Namor! is pissed off. When isn't Namor pissed off? This time, however, he has a right to be. The surface world are once again screwing up the oceans by depositing experimental power generators in his backyard, so to speak, and to prevent this, Namor tears apart the submersible. Namor isn't a complete bastard, though, and he saves the lives of the men in the submersible before flying away. Again, O'Neill sets up the story in a minimum amount of space, and Ramita and Mooney's art really sells Namor as both warrior and massive prick. Namor then goes back to Atlantis and rabble-rouses his people into readying themselves for war. Peter Parker is also having a bad night. His neighbour is belting out country hits at 4am. Rather than try to get some sleep, he decides to slip into his Spider-Man outfit and go and check on Deb's uncle. I mentioned last time that he'd get back to him. There's a funny beat here where Spidey dons his mask, top and boots, but is about to go web-swinging in his pyjama pants. To our hero's surprise, Deb's uncle is still awake. Not only that, but he's having problems with his men, all of whom have heard of Namor's intervention and don't really want to go and drop any more power generators in the sea, lest they arise the ire of Namor. Spidey intervenes and gets covered in brine for his troubles. He spends the rest of these issues scratching due to the itch this causes. He chases the men away, but once again is a massive dickhead to Deb's uncle when Deb's uncle asks for help. Spidey flat out says no, he's a city boy, not a sailor. 
This is the only serious mischaracterization of Peter in Denny's run, and this is the second time Peter has been incredibly rude when turning down a request for help. Whilst he may not want to do this, and who can blame him? Nemo's a badass. He'd still be more understanding to the plight than he is here. The next day at ESU, Deb once again mentions her uncle to Peter. This is a fascinating scene in that, due to how excellent comics are, we get Peter's knowledge and thoughts. He's doing amazing mental gymnastics to justify his choice, even though he knows he's wrong. I can't disrupt my life on the off chance I may do some good, he thinks. Really, Peter? Really? I was actually disappointed he had to go to Aunt May for her to deliver yet another inspirational moment for him to realise he's being a prick, get into costume and go and help Uncle Whitman. I'd have much preferred Peter came to this realisation on his own. Arriving at the dock, Spider-Man teams up with Whitman, and Whitman tells his crew he doesn't need them anymore. He has Spider-Man on side. Incredibly, this causes the crew to throw in with Whitman, not for any noble reason, but because they don't want to be shown up by, of all people, Spider-Man. This was lovely. We forget, thanks to the films, that Spider-Man isn't well-loved in the Marvel U. People are wary of him, they don't trust him, and they certainly don't want to be shown up by him. Submariner predictably arrives, and fisticuffs ensue. This is a pretty knockdown, drag-out fight, with Spider-Man using his brains to defeat Namor as much as his brawn. He systematically drains Namor of moisture by keeping him in the air, getting covered by smoke from the stacks and webbing up his ankles so he can't fly. Spider-Man himself is quite surprised by how well he holds up against a much stronger foe. This is a nice example of Peter's imposter syndrome. When he uses his brains, Peter is a match for most foes, and Namor is driven by rage here rather than thinking clearly. All Namor sees is yet another human mistake in treating him and his people as somehow lesser. When Namor clears his head a little and explains what's happening, Spider-Man, the scientist, and Whitman all plan out a better course of action. The message of the story is clear. Stop posturing, stop waving your dick around, stop fighting, and do what you were always going to have to do at the end anyway. Talk. Namor even suggests a better place for the generators. This was overall another fun done in one. The action is well done by Ramita, and it's actually fairly typical of the time period. There aren't thousands of civilians in peril, no toppling buildings or high stakes, just one boat and two heroes in a rather low-key, albeit visually entertaining, battle. Another winner, as far as I'm concerned. Amazing Spider-Man 212's cover by John Ramita Jr. and Al Milgren is really effective. Water from a fire hydrant seems to coalesce into the form of a man. A man who's shooting jets of water with all the force of a fire hose at Spider-Man. As with his father, John Jr. populates the streets with recognisable faces and real people. The Coming of Hydro-Man, always a title that makes me smile, is by the same team as last time, O'Neill, Romita Jr. and Mooney. And it's another good done-in-one from O'Neill, but this one has a few oddities in the plot. It does have the added pathos that the story is all Spider-Man's fault, even though he and Hydra-Man never know it. What's great about these stories, though, is even though the reader isn't aware of it yet, they're all building up to something. As the story opens, Spidey is still on Whitman's ship, the Bulldog, preparing for the insertion of the generator into the location given to them by Namor. Things go predictably tits up, the generator cable snaps, and Spider-Man, in trying to help, inadvertently knocks a sailor, Mori Bench, into the drink. 
Spider-Man saves the day, insulating and isolating the faulty cable, and rescues Mori, a miracle of sorts, as he was being sucked into the propeller when Spidey found him. It's a neat opener. As this is comic book science, O'Neill doesn't really need to explain what happens. It's enough for us to buy that something happens and Mori now can't stop sweating. The guy cannot keep dry. Spider-Man is still itchy and therefore very cranky at the beginning of this story. O'Neill splits the story's focus as it continues, following Bench and Peter Parker before bringing them back together for the climax. Peter is contacted by Jonah, offering him a freelance gig back at the Bugle. Jonah is positively delighted to see Peter, calling him my boy and giving him an easy human interest story to break him back in, go around New York, taking pictures of the heatwave hit populace. Peter accepts the gig and takes Deb with him. Again, Peter's a massive dickhead to Deb. He assumes she has nothing better to do, invites her to wander around the city with him, but upon arrival at the Bugle is given a different assignment. Find this water guy named Hydro Man who's been popping out of people's lavatories and then he ditches her. Mori, meanwhile, can't stop leaking. He even blows off Sadie, a woman who clearly has rep in the neighbourhood, and he turns into a puddle. Like Sandman, he's able to pull himself back together, but this is where things start to get a tad odd. Mori doesn't really freak out about this. Instead, he decides to go after all the other sailors for doing this to him. But decides to go after Spider-Man first because he's the hardest to defeat. This is where it may have been better to have Mori know Spider-Man caused him to fall into the water and have him go after Spider-Man because of that, as his motivations are really woolly. Surely it would make more sense to knock off all the people that aren't going to be a problem first. His investigative techniques really need work as well. He plans to go around New York through every sink, bath and toilet in the city until he finds Spider-Man. Can you imagine if he came up in a toilet, started to coalesce into the form of a man, opened his mouth just as somebody took a dump in it? That would not be pleasant. It also seems very time-consuming. Fortunately, Spider-Man is searching for him, and he finds him. For reasons not explained, Mori is about to lay a smackdown on stock market guru Easton Kibosh, and a brief battle sees Spider-Man left wet-handed as Hydra-Man disappears down a drain. Peter takes his photos to Jonah and pulls a villain's tactic on Hydro-Man, telling Jonah to publish a challenge from Spider-Man in the Bugle. The final battle goes the same way Spidey's fight with Namor went, with Spider-Man essentially using the exact same tactics. He uses paper, steam and the midday sun to drive Mori out, causing him to turn into mist and fade away. What Ingle does here is quite clever. Yes, this could be seen as repetition, repeating the beats of last issue's story, but that battle is still fresh in Peter's mind. And essentially, it's the guy with pretty much the same power set. So, yeah, the same method of taking him out would work. And all these single issues are going somewhere, as we shall see tomorrow, as I continue my daily look at Denny O'Neill's run on Spider-Man. Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here with a brand spanking new trailer for From Crisis to Crisis. I'm it's... here too! I, I, I know you're here, Jeff. I just wanted to make that clear. It, it, it's, it's clear, Jeff. This Good. Time. Anyway, 
Ten years ago, we began our quest to cover just about every post-crisis on Infinite Earth's Superman comic, going from Man of Steel number one in 1986 all the way to Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. Now it's 2020, and we're heading into the Superman books with the cover date of 1996, which means we're about halfway through our mandate. Which was only supposed to take five years. Anyway, 1996 is going to be a huge year for the show. And we're going to have a lot of great stuff to talk about. Like Lois and Clark breaking their engagement. I'm not sure I would call that great, but yes, it does indeed happen. Then, the real return of Lex Luthor, an old flame of Clark's, reveals that she's not dead. Lois leaves Metropolis. Something bad happens to Perry White. Clark gets a promotion. And then there's Final Night. And we're going to end the year with a wedding and a honeymoon. Plus, we're still covering the Superman family books. So, so happy that we won't be dealing with Titans or Outsiders anymore. And we get a new Supergirl title, a new Justice League title, and even a Superboy team book involving a rave. Yeah, because, you know, raves and stuff. I'll be sure to bring my pacifier and my glow sticks. From Crisis to Crisis is part of the Fortress of Bailytude podcasting network located at www.fortressofbailytude.com. You can find all of the back episodes of the series at that site, plus the other shows on the network. From Crisis to Crisis is also available through Apple Podcasts app, the Google Play Store, and you can stream us on Spotify. Okay, I told you I'd be doing emails. I'll do one a day. Seeing as uh, that seems to be the best way to go by doing little short burst episodes like this. Our first email is from Michael Ridge. They've given you a number. Greetings, Andrew. Hello, Michael. The theme song from Danger Man was stuck in my head for years. It is one adult theme mixed in with a half a dozen children's show theme that looped through my head for days after I hear it. I thought it was the theme from The Prisoner because the lyric fits that show. I also thought it was sung by Engelbert Humperdinck, the Welsh singer, not the composer. So you've taught me something. Do you think that will help me get a government grant? If it gets me any money, Michael, I would be delighted. To inform, educate and entertain is my remit. Thinking of Danger Man reminded me of another British espionage thriller. All I can remember is that the agent reported to Mother, a codename like Bonds M, who had his own office equipped with hanging handholds so they could get around using crutches. It was something we saw about the same time as The Prisoner. I'd like to have your opinion on the show before I start searching eBay for episodes. Thanks for your time, Michael Ridge. The only show I can think of that had a character called Mother was the later seasons of The Avengers. Um, starring Patrick McNee, and at that point, it was Linda Thorson um, who had replaced Diana Rigg, who obviously replaced Honor Blackman. That's the only that's the only thing I can think of. If anyone else has any information on what that may be, but I think that may be the latter seasons of the Avengers. Anyway, thank you to Michael for emailing in. We'll do another email and three more issues tomorrow. As long as I'm pulling this off. Uh, hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com is how you can get in touch with me. I'll be back tomorrow with more from Denny O'Neill. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>